to New York in 2009, which was a really burgeoning time for New York tech. So it was Vimeo, Tumblr, Meetup, Flickr. It was an amazing community of really inspiring people who were building things that were, that were really creative and had a lot of heart. I came out of that journey and I was really inspired to start my own company. I'm the son of a GP, I'm married to a doctor. Healthcare has been in, my, in the background of my life forever and I really felt like I had something to give in that space. In 2010, there wasn't a lot of digital healthcare companies and that was, that was still an unproven space, much more proven now. And so I just went for it. Welcome to episode 175 of Be The Drop, a weekly interview podcast sharing stories from people who inspire and motivate others to help you learn how to tell your story. I'm Amelia Veal, Director at Narrative Marketing and firm believer in the superpower of storytelling. When you know what you want, decision-making is easier. The hard part is figuring out what you want. Embracing the confidence in your decision-making allows you to enjoy wherever your journey takes you. Someone who knows this through personal experience is Australian entrepreneur Nick Crocker, who I had the pleasure of interviewing at South Start 2019. Nick is a general partner of Blackbird Ventures. His entrepreneurial tale started when he launched We Are Hunted, a software that continuously scanned the internet to identify the hottest new music. Having caught the startup bug, Nick then launched a digital healthcare company. As someone who was rubbing shoulders with the likes of MySpace, Foursquare, Flickr and Tumblr in 2009 Silicon Valley, and has written a blog post with almost 900,000 reads, Nick has many stories to share. In today's episode of Be The Drop, Nick reflects on his extraordinary entrepreneurial journey, including selling his business to Twitter. He discusses the huge impact on his career that being surrounded by tech startup legends had. And he shares his thoughts on the challenges tech companies have in demonstrating real empathy towards their customers. This is Nick's version of Be The Drop. Nick's episode was recorded live at South Star in Adelaide, a convergence of humans, impact and technology, where humans and machines create tomorrow today. I've included a link in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about South Star. My name is Nick Crocker and I'm a general partner at Blackbird Ventures. Thank you so much, Nick, for joining me for our next episode of Be The Drop here at South Star 2019. Thank you so much for having me. To give us a little bit of context about you and set the scene, can you share with us a story about how you've got to where you are now? Sure. So I went to high school in Queensland. My electorate was the favourite electorate of One Nation. So it wasn't a place where I necessarily fit in culturally. And I always had a burning desire to be somewhere else, which actually proves to be an extraordinarily motivational. So I studied law and political science because I thought that was what you were meant to do and was terrible at both but I always loved music and I could always write, so I became a music journalist. And then I parlayed being a music journalist into being a music entrepreneur, where I had an agency and was, this was the late aughts. So this was 2009, MySpace was a big deal and my expertise was MySpace. Wow. Helping record labels get their head around MySpace. <laughs> that is no longer a skill that's very useful, sadly. Yeah. But out of that, we started a music company called We Are Hunted and that ended up becoming the acquired by Twitter and part of their music strategy no longer exists. RIP, we are hunted, but a wonderful journey. 
In the interim, I started a healthcare company focused on digital health coaching. I was funded by Blackbird Ventures, which is the venture firm where I'm now a partner. I went through that journey, we got acquired. I lived in New York, I lived in Silicon Valley. We had our first baby, we moved home and I went the only place that felt natural, which was Blackbird. Fantastic, what a cool journey. So many things there to chat about. So along your way though, are there some key challenges or pivotal moments that sort of stand out for learnings for you that you look back at and go, yes, that was part of really solidifying who I am and how I approach work now? So there was a very non-intuitive decision that I made with my now wife, Julia, when we were 25. She got into medicine here in Adelaide and I didn't want to move to Adelaide because my career was taking off sort of directionally towards the United States. So when we were 25, we basically agreed to go long distance as long as it needed to happen, which is a really crazy decision for 25-year-olds to make. So we went long distance for four years, which enabled me to move to New York join a company there, start a company in the US, sell a company in the US. And that was, I just look back on that and I'm so glad we did that because Julia was able to become a doctor. I was able to pursue my entrepreneurial dreams and passions. It wasn't ideal for either of us in some ways, but we've both now come to this point where we have a family and we have kids and we know that neither of us had to sacrifice along the way. So I think that was really an unexpectedly good decision at the time, which you didn't know if it was going to work out or not. And so I'm obviously very grateful that Julia went along on that journey as well. Ah, what a fantastic story though, because that making those tough decisions, and that's not just a work tough decision, that's the work-life integration tough decisions. And to come full circle and go, yeah, that, that was rocking. <laughs> I do not recommend doing a remote relationship for four years though. <laughs> I wrote a blog post, a quite a cathartic blog post about what it's like to do remote, um, which I recommend anyone stepping into this decision reads before they make it. Yeah, it's funny though, but because it worked for you, even though you're saying, no, don't recommend that. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah. yeah. My husband works fly and fly out, so he's away a lot. Okay, it's so really you hard. understand. <laughs> yeah, not always strawberries and cream. No, not with kids either, no. No oh, strawberries, wow. no, no cream. No strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, talking about your entrepreneurial journey, I mean, you've done a few different things, started companies, sold companies. Even if we just take your experience in the US, what was it like going over there, starting a company and selling a company there? That's a pretty big experience. So it's strange because when I did it, I thought, I'm so late. Like, I'm the last person I know to have moved to the US and started a company. But actually, I wasn't late. I wasn't early. It's just something that always happens. So it was an amazing experience. I actually went to the US first, not to start a company, but to work for someone who was a personal hero of mine. So... The early 2000s internet was a really much friendlier, much more community-based place. And people forget how nice it was to be on the internet at a certain point in time. So I found this guy called Zach Klein, and I read his blog, and I'd look at his Flickr photos. He um, co-founded the website Vimeo, and so I used the products that he built, and I was just like, this guy is so inspiring in so many ways. I need to go and work for him. I need to go and learn what he, I need to learn the way he thinks. I want, to, I want to immerse myself in his world. So I sent him a Facebook message called, hey, Zach, I'm a huge fan. Can I come work for you? And understandably, he was a little freaked out. And so he said, 
he came around to the idea. He said, I'm not going to hire you. There's no money in the hiring plan. I can't fund you to fly out here. I can't put you up for accommodation. There's no promises of anything. I was like, fine, 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 fine. Because in my mind, I'm going to go meet one of my internet heroes. That's worth a flight to New York and back in a month in the best city in the world. Anyway, he ended up hiring me. We ended up working together. We ended up becoming really dear friends. My wife was there at the birth of his first child. Oh, wow. So it worked out sort of this you know, long-distance love in a different way. Um, worked <laughs> out really well. I had just such a wonderful time working for him, learning from him, uh, and it just opened my eyes. It was New York in 2009, which was a really burgeoning time for New York tech. So it was Vimeo, Tumblr. Meetup, Flickr, this amazing community of really inspiring people who were building things that were, that were really creative and had a lot of heart. I came out of that journey and I was really inspired to start my own company. I'm the son of a GP, I'm married to a doctor. Healthcare has been in, my, in the background of my life forever and I really felt like I had something to give in that space. In 2010, there wasn't a lot of digital healthcare companies and that was, that was still an unproven space, much more proven now. And so I just went for it and I started a company and it was, it was hard and it was challenging and there were times where it wasn't fun, but you look back on it, it was the best decision I'd ever made. Yeah, wow. And so, you know, what was some of the things that really helped propel that business forward and then get you to a point where you actually successfully sold the business? So the truth is, it was not a business that ever propelled forward. <laughs> it, was, it was always early for the whole year and a half, two years. So the things that we did really well is, it was a digital health coaching company, so I was think of, a, think of having a, a healthcare coach in your pocket who sends you texts and gets to know you and sends you reminders and just helps to nudge you in the right way. So we just did this super intensive deep dive into what it means to change people's behavior around healthcare. Like at one point, in 2012, I was coaching 120 people remotely around the US. So I'd work, my, I'd work from sort of 9 to 6 on the business and then I'd coach from 6 to 9 p.m. every night. It just changed the way I think about people, changed the way I think about what people's lives are really like, gave me a lot more empathy for the struggles that people face in whatever they want to change, whether it's behavior or otherwise. And so when it came time to be acquired, I think what we had was a unique perspective on what it took to change people's lives. And we had a really small team, it was just three of us when we, that, that went across with the acquisition. But we were all so passionate about what we did and so deeply bought into to people's journeys. And we went into a company that had 50 million users. And so we brought, I think this was my fitness power, we brought a different voice of the user inside the company in a really impactful way. And we had a team, um, Ben Hartney, Glennis Corsi, and myself, that just really cared about the problem. And that's more rare than I think you'd find. And in product organizations in particular, customer empathy can be a differentiating factor. And so we loved our time at MyFitnessPal. I think that the proof of the success of that acquisition is that I stayed three years, Glennis stayed four, and Ben stayed five. Yeah. And we all have really deep relationships still with each other and, and a lot of love for that experience in that time. Yeah. And I love that sentiment, customer empathy. You know, how do you build that sort of relationship communication with your customers? Well, it depends. You know, I always, the person I always think about was older man in Minnesota who had a wife who was fully reliant on him for his care and he was, he was really unhappy with where he was in his life with his health. But it wasn't just like, hey, mate, get out of bed, get some motivation, pump yourself up, lift some weights. It was literally like, 
in the middle of winter, how do I get out of my house and leave my wife who's dependent on me to be physically active? And so literally started with him with just a walk around the block. He felt it was about identifying for him, like, what can you do? So you definitely can't go for a 50-minute run. What is the thing that you can do that's positive, that's real to you, that's yours? And just the relationship we built with him over a year and a half, gradually expanding the walks, gradually building his confidence. As he built confidence, you know, a walk turns into a longer walk, turns into a sense of self-authority almost, the ability to, to make decisions that positively impact. And so now we can swap out foods that aren't great for others and you feel like that's who you are. You start to attach your identity to a different version of yourself. So for us, it was literally just spending hours on the phone and and text messages back and forth and emails back and forth and just getting to know them in the fullness of their lives, in the full complexity of what it meant to be that person. And you can lose, you can just see users as like weekly active users and that's a number that you make go up and you forget that there's someone, there's a single individual wanting to rely on your product or service at the end of that process who you should care for. And if you really care for them, then like that is self-perpetuating in terms of creating really wonderful companies. It's one of the aspects anyway. Yeah, and I think that's such an important aspect here at South Start when they're looking at human and technology convergence. And as we move forward and become more reliant on technology, I think remembering that the human element of technology is, is so very important. I mean, we, we tested all kinds of different reminders, automated reminders with people, but the thing that we could not replace was the sense of obligation that you felt to me because I cared about you and I'd invested in you for you to go and do the thing that we were trying to help you do. And if you want to change someone's life, one of the things that really matters is caring and understanding. And that's very hard to scale with technology. And I think no one's really figured it out. We're trying to find ways. There's certain experiences um, where it works. Like I think meditation is a great example of something that can be automated where you don't need a real coach. If I was trying to, if you're trying to improve someone's healthcare, really profoundly improve it, it's hard to do it with just a set of automated reminders and an AI bot. Yeah, definitely. So then another experience that you've had then was selling a business to Twitter as well. So what was that? You know, they're a big international company. What's that process like? Yeah, so that process for me was like founders or the, the, the people who eventually ran that business letting me know via email that it sold to Twitter. So I was well and truly out of that business. So it was a bit of a funny founding journey where we had a digital agency. We partnered with another company that had been venture-backed. We launched a side project. That side project ended up becoming way more popular and valuable than our agency or the company they were working on. And I was 25 at the time. And basically they came with a pretty clear mandate that like either we needed to raise a million dollars to keep the journey going or we had to get out. And I didn't know how to raise a million dollars. That was a obviously do now but back then that wasn't unfathomable so we ended up selling that business um, very early in the journey and you know maintaining a little piece of ownership over time which is why we found out about Twitter I think the more interesting exit story is sessions to my fitness pal and that was I, I still remember the day um, where we met those founders and we talked for probably two or two and a half hours about product, about customer, about the decisions we'd made, about the way that we'd set up the website and the way we'd animated certain parts of the experience. And we just went so deep. Came off the, we came off the call, we looked at each other like, that was ridiculously good. Like we just felt like we'd met kindred spirits. And so, you know, we weaved and made our way to an acquisition 90 days later. 
So for you, was there any sort of learning in that process and the previous process around acquisitions and, you know, going through that journey? Any takeaways? I mean, it's massively psychologically taxing. And in the in the selling version, there's, it's quite existential because sometimes if you don't sell, you invest so much in that exit that it's going to be hard to um, keep the company going regardless. Um, you know, I think our process was much more we were selling the company versus getting bought. And so... Ideally, you have a company that people want to buy versus a company that you're trying to sell. Um, but primarily, the thing that I look back on and reflect back on, and I've coached quite a few founders through similar acquisition sizes, processes and sizes, the hardest thing to manage is your own head through the whole process. And the thing that brings people undone is just kind of losing control, that letting the stress get to them, showing their cards too early, like being afraid when they don't need to, misjudging the power dynamic, optimizing for the wrong thing, like mostly it's a it's a psychological journey than it is like mechanics of the business journey. Mm. And so what, you know, to help manage you through that psychological journey, is it the people around you that really help with that? I you was know, really lucky. I was really lucky with the with the co-founders I had at sessions. They were removed enough where they were okay with whatever the outcome was and just super supportive, but also let me run it and let me kind of gave me the space to figure it out. For me, it was my co-founders, um, Julia, my wife, obviously, is incredibly supportive, but no one else really understands. You just, it's, it's a very private, personal process. And again, I'm talking about acquisitions where it's smaller and more difficult. There are lots of founders who could sell their company tomorrow because 10 people want to buy it. That's, that's not the thing that I did. I remember getting so stressed that my jaw locked and I was trying to do phone calls with my jaw clamped together, like trying to sound like a normal person to these potential acquirers, I couldn't even open my mouth. Like, the stress got it pretty high, it's fair to say. Yeah, right. So then, you know, if you're looking back and thinking about overall and your journey and where you'll go now, what are some of the things that you think are the lessons you learned that will propel you moving forward? I think the hardest thing in life is to figure out what you want. Like, what do you want? Not what do your parents want? What do the people you went to high school want? What does your boss want? What do you want in life? And if you figure that out, if you have a reasonable guess at what that is, then it becomes easy to make the decisions that flow from that. So I, f I was fortunate, extraordinarily fortunate, to find the person that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with at 18 years old. But pretty early on, and because of the upbringing that I had, I just knew that my greatest source of happiness would be my family. And so my partner, Julia, my kids. And it, and, and it changes when you have kids, but my extended family as well. And so even though I've talked about doing a startup and doing remote and all of that sort of stuff, it was all in service of setting myself up for a life where I can be present with the people I love the most. But I don't think everyone's wired like that. And so when I say figure out what you want, that's just my version of what I wanted. And so there's a real tendency to inherit other people's expectations or inherit other people's views of what you should want or what you should do. And when you chase that and you get it, it can be quite an empty end to the journey. And so, you know, I was coming here, I was trying to write my speech last night, and my four-year-old isn't like a great go-to-bed guy. <laughs> so it's like 8.45, and he's in my room melting down, and I'm like, I haven't sent my slides for today. And I was just like, this is what I signed up for. Like, this is not fun. He's like, he's telling me we're not going to be friends anymore. As, you know, as four-year-olds having tantrums do, yeah. I just thought, you know what? This is like, 
I have to get joy and some level of fulfillment from even these moments. You can't just swan in and enjoy the high points when everyone's having a picnic on a sunny day. Like you have to be there yeah. and you've got a crying baby in one room, crying four-year-old in the other, everyone's at their wit's end. And so knowing that that's what I want makes those moments, in those moments, much easier to decide what to do. Thank you. That was a really good answer. <laughs> a great story to share. Well, in conclusion, Nick, can you share with me your be the drop tip? And so that's your top tip for communication that motivates and inspires. How to tell your story in a way that impacts others. So I think there's sometimes a confusion between a story that a lot of people pay attention to and a story that makes a difference. So I wrote a blog post in 2011 after I went to a supermarket in Norwood here in South Australia in Adelaide and 842,000 people have read it and to be honest I'm not that proud of it and it's called the world is fucking insane and a lot of people paid attention to it and it was worthless ultimately. I also wrote a post in 2013 called the elephants which is talking about how to build a group around you of people like you who want to achieve similar things to you that is set up to hold you each accountable to that best version of yourself that you're pursuing. 25,000 people have read that since 2013. But I get emails every week from people around the world who've followed the formula for setting that up. And I think the difference is that great communication is authentic and real to you, but that doesn't mean it will always be popular. And so you have to be willing to say the thing that's true to you, even if Three quarters of the room think you're an idiot. If it's true to you and it's authentic, it will find the audience and it will connect the, with the audience in the way that you want it to. And have the greater impact. Oh, okay. I love that. Fantastic. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Ah, that's great. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Be The Drop. Don't forget to subscribe in order to ensure you never miss out on one of our weekly episodes. Be The Drop is produced by Narrative Marketing, where we believe that stories connect individuals and that powerful storytelling can positively impact the world. To unleash your storytelling superpower, visit narrativemarketing.com.au or check out our social links in the show notes. To contact me directly with any specific comments you have, you can email me via amelia at narrativemarketing.com.au. And don't forget that whilst a task or challenge may seem overwhelming, a waterfall begins with one drop and look what comes from that.